Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It is David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now we step back into the ring, back into time, into the Great Smoky Mountains, and there ain't no hoss like the Tennessee stud. What's going on, my friend, Ron Fuller? What's up there, man? I'm doing good, my man. Beautiful day here. Got uh, pretty blue skies and a little cool. A little cool, but I guess that's got to happen this time of year. <laughs> you here guys. in the mountains. So, uh, you know, we haven't had any snow since that first one. So I guess we got something to be happy about there. All right, but you guys got plenty of snow like a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. got really nice snow the first yeah. one, man. A couple of weeks ago, it was really pretty, and uh, we didn't have to get out in it, so that was good too. And <laughs> uh, you know, just really got to enjoy it. Um, uh, kind of looking forward to the next one, I guess. To be honest with you, I so, hear you. And um, and uh, just uh, looking forward to putting together another one here for everybody. Uh, all the fans out there really appreciate everybody listening and being with us today. And, uh, I think we got another good one for him. Oh, I think so. I, I, I tell you what stud last week, studcast number two thirty one about the first week in Southeastern's 1978 was really a huge one. Fans have been really excited about the new territory of Southeastern Pensacola that has become a part of every studcast now. So how did you come up with the idea of using it for today's training segments? Well, it, it was kind of a perfect fit. It seemed like, Dave, you know, the today's training part of every show was kind of always intended to, to be used to educate fans about the things that were never discussed in the old school days with fans. Uh, there's no kayfabe anymore when it comes to professional wrestling. And, and I love being able to use a brand new territory. One started in 1978, southeastern mm -hmm. Pensacola, mm -hmm. as a perfect example of what had to be done to make wrestling successful back in that time frame. Yeah. So fans in all of these uh, today's training segments uh, get that look behind the curtain of professional wrestling every week and in every stud cast. And really, I think that's why it's become so popular with today's fans. You take us behind the curtain and make us more knowledgeable as fans. You also do that with your YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind, by playing back those great original USA and Continental TV shows in their original order of distribution. I'm not aware of anybody else that's doing that. 
Well, you know, I mean, I think there's some that have tried to do it, uh, but I think we're able to get almost all the shows, and uh, that's going to that's gonna make a big difference in that part of it. So, And I'm basically still telling the story of professional wrestling through my TV shows of the past and uh, with my present-day studcast, man. I'm doing, uh, you know, I'm telling it in both ways mm-hmm. and uh, teaching fans how it was done to, to make it even more enjoyable for them, hopefully. And they can get two new TV shows each week on Southeastern Rewind, CCW, Continental Championship Wrestling. Uh, they get it from its inception in 1985. Uh, to, and we've got the USA Wrestling TV shows from 1988. So the stars and the angles may be different on the two, but it was great wrestling then. And uh, it's still pretty darn good stuff now, man. <laughs> When I see it back, I'm pretty way amazed at uh, <laughs> how good some of those shows really were. <laughs> and uh, you can get every new stud cast on there and uh, stud stories on everything from my family's experiences to my own from wrestling against 11 of the great NWA world champions. Uh, we got stud stories. We got a little bit of everything for fans now on that uh Southeastern Rewind YouTube channel. Oh, I agree. I love following the 11 NWA world champions that you have faced in your career. So what you're doing is pretty remarkable, in my opinion. I think the fans agree, too, especially considering you left the sport in 1988, more than 30 years ago, and you're making a comeback today. How do you do that? Speaking of today, so where are we going to be riding today, Stud? Well, we're going to be beginning today, as we promised last week, by discussing the actual money paid to the Fields brothers, Bobby Lee and Don Fields, for their Gulf Coast Wrestling Company in the month of January 1978. And uh, when, uh, you know, we're then uh, returning to southeastern Knoxville after we do that uh, today's training this morning. Uh, And then we're going to talk about the Great Coliseum card, the January 8th, 1978. Joel Duke and Ronnie Garvin. They're brawling over a $10,000 prize money that Garvin had left the ring with in the two-ring battle royal from last week's studcast. Uh, Golden's back. Jimmy Golden has returned to Southeastern at this point after an eight-month absence to face the Mongolian Stomper. And uh, Tony Charles is going to have his first-ever Texas death match against Nelson Royal on this card. So uh, we'll talk about the Super TV that promoted that event, the results of the matches, and uh, obviously the attendance. And then we're going to get under that learning tree again and answer a very good question from a fan out of Canada. And uh, this guy says he understands that Robert and I would exchange the booking job in southeastern Pensacola once a year when I was not booking was it totally off hands and vice versa? Hmm. If I had any concerns about the direction things were going, did I ever overrule my brother? Ooh. <laughs> I like overruling my brother a lot of times. He needed it. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I want to hear this, though. I, wanna, I, I wonder how that went down with, with you taking your turn for a year and hands off. Did you really stay hands off? And then the same for your brother. All right, so it really sounds like a, the makings of a really good studcast, right? So are you really going to be up front with all of your Studcast listeners about the financial terms for the sale of Gulf Coast Wrestling to Southeastern Pensacola? Absolutely, my man. You know, why not? Hmm. You know, uh, this may be one of the few times in wrestling history where there, where there are going to be no kayfabe, especially when it comes to money. <laughs> right. Guys are going to kayfabe things in the business. It was always about money. <laughs> 
So as I said last week, uh, the subchapter S corporation paperwork had been filed in the first week of January, 1978. I met with the Three Fields brothers in the second week of 1978, which is basically 44 years ago from today. We're in that second week, 1978. And uh, I met with the Three Fields brothers at Lee Field Stock Car Racetrack outside Mobile, Alabama. He was in the race, racing business at mm. that point. And uh, we met out at his track. So before we begin the figures, Dave, uh, let's take a few minutes to talk about another wrestling company that actually bought Gulf Coast Wrestling before I did. Mm. And uh, Jim Barnett, who a lot of people are familiar with that name. They know quite a bit about Jimsy, you know, and uh, another promoter in Georgia and out of Columbus, Georgia, Fred Ward. Uh, they own Georgia Championship Wrestling. And they were also looking to expand in the late seventies, just like I was. And they bought Gulf coast wrestling first before I did. And I don't know all the details, but they backed out of the deal within a month or so of the purchase. In fact, I wasn't even aware that they'd ever been involved until the closing at the racetrack. Wow. Okay. All right. So it sounds like more of that really tremendous due diligence work that you mentioned last week that you were not going to be going down there, Ron. Remember that? Come on. <laughs> all right. So, so, all right. So were you on your toes and discovering everything about the future purchase? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, let's don't get too frisky down there, Dave. You know, <laughs> I, I know where you live, man. Oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm not making fun, but for real, before this Southeastern Pensacola story is over, you're going to look like one of the most intelligent men in the history of the sport. So what was the total cost? to buy a wrestling territory in 1978? Well, that's a question that's probably not been asked many times around the world, you know? So <laughs> the total price, for, uh, sale price for Gulf Coast Wrestling was exactly what I'd paid for Southeastern Knoxville, total of $150,000. Hmm. Uh, I paid $25,000 down, and I signed a contract to pay $500 a week every week for the next four years wow. and 42 weeks wow! for the grand total of $150,000. I had partners, but I fronted all the money for us at this point until the Southeastern Pensacola company got started making some profit. You know, I just, I, I was doing pretty darn well. I'd been there in Knoxville. I'd been wanting to make this purchase. And uh, I told my partners, uh, I'll take care of everything. And once we start making money, then you can start paying me for what I spent. Right. Okay. So, you know, I, do, I know it doesn't sound like a whole lot of money, uh, you know, back, uh, but back <laughs> in 1978, <laughs> that amount in today's money would be $630,000. Come on. That was, that was a lot of money in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a lot of money in 1978. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, when you put it in today's money terms, yeah. there's really yeah. a lot of money. Indeed. So, um, Maybe a better way to compare the territories back in 1978, the two territories, I'm talking about Knoxville and then Pensacola, would be a quick comparison of the population of the Knoxville territory uh, to the Gulf Coast territory. And uh, that, that, that kind of puts it in a totally di different perspective, man. So uh, southeastern Knoxville was only one major city with many small surrounding cities. And we did business in three total states. Uh, most of it was in Tennessee. 
A lot of it was in Kentucky, and some of it was in the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, uh, we got uh, we spent a little bit of one year in a little bit parts of West Virginia. Hmm. Southeastern Pensacola was a lot different. It had five major markets, Mobile, Montgomery, Dothan, Alabama, hmm. plus Pensacola and Panama City, Florida, and the Panhandle. And it had many smaller cities in not just three, but four different states. We hmm. ran in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. So southeastern Pensacola, population-wise, was almost four times as large as southeastern Knoxville. Well, so, all right, but when you put it like that, Ron, I mean, it really, it sounds more like a bargain. At the closing, Ron, did you bring all the cash, like, in small bills, like the story you tell about your father's closing on the first big farm in Loxley, Alabama, the time he bought a bulldozer? <laughs> well, you you, you got to, you're wearing some big pants today, Dave. I mean... <laughs> You having yourself a good time? Yeah. I re- I remember that I do. Yeah, it's a good thing we're four hundred miles apart, man. I mean, oh come on! Uh, no, no, you just I don't. I, no, I didn't. I didn't bring all cash, man. I okay, just you that. You need to know Bigfoot lives in my woods, right behind my house. Just just so you know. All right, so all right. Anyway, I agree. That's not far enough apart. I mean, I'm done. About okay, I'm done with being a smartass just for a short period of time. You know me. All right, so what else did you get at the closing other than the rights to run matches in that part of the country? Well, that's that's a good question, too, man. I mean, what do you get when you buy a wrestling company? That's exactly so, uh, what I was going to say. So, you know, <laughs> well, obviously, I, I got the rights to run the same area in which they had been running for 20 years, basically. But I also got four wrestling rings. Two of them were 16-footers, uh, means they were 16-foot square. Uh, it's like a TV ring, mm-hmm. a spot show ring in which you got a small building. And I also got two 20 foot rings. And the best part about the, these rings is the, they were built by my father, my brother and I ah. 20 years earlier. Hmm. And they were some of the first all steel rings ever built, man. Uh, you know, they were doing, uh, rings about back in the fifties out of wood, man. And uh, so dad started building because he had been a welder before he became a wrestler. Mm-hmm. He started building them out of steel. And uh, these rings were still in great shape 20 years later. And we also got some bleachers that my dad had built uh, during the same time frame. And they were in the building in Panama City that ran every Thursday night. Okay. All right. I want to ask about the bleachers. So the bleachers, your dad built those and they were in PC? Yeah. Yeah, they were in Panama City, sure were, uh, in the old uh, roller rink there, man. It was a building that wrestling ran in uh, when uh, when I bought it down there. And uh, we, we were there every Thursday night. Uh, had uh, some great stories out of that little building, man. Uh, <laughs> worst ride I was ever in was in that little building, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Good Lord, okay. All right, so I'm kind of fascinated by this. I doubt there's any wrestling podcast in the world where fans are going to get this kind of information. These 1978 stud cast are already beginning to be great, in my opinion. So what are we going to be learning next week about your starting up a new wrestling territory? How does that? How's that going to go? Well, next stud cast, man, uh, we're going to continue with another, an, another today's training, and it's going to be based around uh, what's going on in southeastern Pensacola, and I'm going to focus on the huge responsibility of a wrestling company owner, man, uh, especially one of the major things. 
And that was securing time and building a relationship with the great television stations and management that were down in that part of the country. So the biggest market in the southeastern Pensacola territory, when I bought it, was Mobile, Alabama. And Gulf Coast Wrestling had lost their TV station there because of bad ratings just mm. before I bought it. Mm. So, so they they had no television, Mobile, or Pensacola. Wow. So, you know, uh, that's a that's a pretty big pretty big uh, thing to have to take start taking care of right away. Yeah. And I had to have it right away too. Yeah. So last week's studcast we focused on creating that great demo tape in Knoxville, man, uh, to get us on, on bigger and better TV stations in southeastern Pensacola. In fact, that was the whole uh, the whole reason for it. And that's going to be our focus on the next studcast, the next day's training. And uh we're going to be getting back on WKRG TV in Mobile, Alabama, uh, one of the big stations along the Gulf Coast there. And uh, it's it happened to be the same TV station with the same manager, a fellow named C.P. Persons, that my father had dealt with in 1954 when he went there 24 years earlier and established the territory. Mm. So C.P. Persons is going to be dealing with his second generation of Fullers. <laughs> Kind of, it seems kind of lucky on your part. I mean, because you know the guy instantly once you walk in. All right, so I love these new today's training stud. Studcasts have to me have really become educational. But now discussing weekly exactly how you planned and developed the new southeastern Pensacola territory is pretty fascinating. So where do we ride to from here? Where does the trail take us now? Oh man, we're going to gallop back uh, toward Knoxville, man. We're galloping back north again to Knoxville, and uh, we're going to talk about the original Southeastern Territory. Uh, we're going to take a look at the second Knoxville Coliseum card uh, in January of 1978, which happened to be on a Sunday afternoon, January 8th. And it was another seven match card, followed by the big battle royal last week, uh, which was the beginning of 1978. Now, this card opened with the man manager of the Southeastern Tag Champions, Ron Wright, facing off against the recently returned and very popular Mike Stalling. Roy Lee Welch, Russell Samoan, Reno Tafuli. Then Thunderbolt Patterson squared off against the other Samoan brother, Tio Tafuli. And the Southeastern Tag Championship match was next. The champions, Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Ron Wright, mm -hmm. refused to give a third title match in a row to Robert Fuller and Thunderbolt Patterson. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rob was forced to go find himself another partner if he wanted to get another shot, the Southeastern title. And uh, he got a good one. He chose a very capable Ricky Gibson, man. He ah. was a heck of a worker back in those days. Yep. Uh, always a great young wrestler. Uh, the next event uh, was a very special one on that card. It was world junior champion Nelson Royal. Uh, he was scheduled to defend his world title again three weeks later on the last Sunday in January of 1978. And in order to assure uh, his not having to defend again against Tony Charles, Royal made a challenge to Tony Charles uh, for a Texas death match, the first one that Tony Charles had ever had since he'd come to America. And uh, the deal was, uh, Nelson, uh, he was scared of Tony Charles, I think, <laughs> what it actually was. He was scared he was going to lose his title to Tony. 
And uh, and the deal was if Tony lost the Texas death match, he didn't get the shot at Nelson Royal three weeks later for the oh. World Junior Heavyweight Championship. Hmm. And uh, like I said, that to me was proof that Roy wasn't comfortable with Tony Charles possibly getting that third title match. So then the next match on the card was uh, extremely popular. Jimmy Golden returning after a long absence. He was getting his first shot. At the Southeastern champion, Mongolian Stomper, managed by gorgeous George Jr. The main event was the result of the finish of the two-ring triple chance battle royal of the week before. And Ronnie Garvin had ended up partners with Joe LaDuke in ring one. And uh, they took on Don Carson, the assassin, who ended up being the two winners in ring two. And that tag match was going to see who was going to get the $10,000 prize money, 5000 for each guy on the team that won. And uh, so Garvin refused to start that final tag match. And instead he forced an already Joe, bloody Joe LaDuke who had been in the last match preceding the battle Royal came back and went into the battle Royal. He wasn't scheduled to, but he wanted to, I guess. And he had been bloody because he had wrestled a Mongolian stomper in that match on January 1st. And he was already bloody. And once he and Garvin were partners together, and they got ready to start the last tag match in the ring together. Across the ring was Carson and the assassin. Garvin uh, told, <laughs> told Joe LaDuke he wasn't, he wasn't going to start the match. And uh, not only did he not start the match, he never even tagged in. And he <laughs> left Joe LaDuke in there with Carson and the assassin uh -uh. for the entire match. Oh, a little God. tag match there. And then uh, at the end of that match, uh, Joe LaDuke was so good, man. He was so tough that he actually threw Carson out of the ring and he knocked the assassin out and they covered him for the winning pin. And uh, when Joe Duke got the three count, <laughs> Garvin jumped off the top rope in his back. That's how he thanked him for it. Wow. <laughs> and he collected the $5,000 for his part of the win, which he didn't do anything to win at all. Uh -huh. And then Joe Duke still down after he jumped off his back in his back. He took Joe's $5,000 with him and he left well. the ring with Joe's money too. So uh, in this upcoming match on the one that we're going to be talking about this week, the winner is going to leave the ring with the entire 10,000 bucks. Well, I think Ronnie was just trying to lighten the load for poor, poor old Joe or something. I, I don't know. All right. What a great main event though. And the entire card on January 8th, 1978. So I bet we're going to be talking about the TV of Saturday, January 7th. That was promoting this card the following afternoon, right? Uh, that's exactly right, my man. Yeah, you and you and Mr. Pickles, man, y'all still got it rolling pretty good. <laughs> you bet we do. <laughs> this TV started with a close-up, uh, as, as almost all of them did, of Les, running down the card for the day. And then he opened the show up with a heavily bandaged Joe LaDuke sitting next to him at the set. And Joe was bandaged up from the week before. And behind them uh, was one of those big, full screens across that set, still shots. This one was Joe LaDuke on top of the assassin and Ronnie Garvin, his partner, standing on the top rope and about to jump off and Joe's back. So uh, Joe quickly expanded, you know, he explained to everybody that was seeing what the still shot was, all of that was behind him, obviously. And he talked about how he had wrestled the entire match and he got no help from Garvin. How he got the pin by himself and that this still shot behind him then uh, to win the, each of them $5,000. He got them the money, the whole deal. 
And then he asked Les to roll the video and let the fans see what happened next. Well, the studio erupted in booze, obviously, as did this huge crowd that afternoon in the Coliseum uh, when Garvin landed on his partner's back, Chota Duke's back. And uh, then the video did the talking from there. Basically, it showed Garvin take his money for the win uh, that he didn't deserve. It got his money from the referee, and then he also got Joe Duke's money from the referee, and then he kicked the referee in the back of the head and left him laying there with Joe Duke. So the studio crowd was very upset, but they weren't nearly as upset as Joe was about it. I can tell you that. And um, his anger just really exploded when all of a sudden Ronnie Garvin entered the studio. He was on the first match of the day. So uh, Les had to grab Joe by the arm to keep him from going right straight to the ring after Garvin. He wanted to get him right then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Les kind of begged Joe to sit with him, you know, and watch, watch this first match of the day with him. Just play Joe to settle down, you know, please mm-hmm. just stay here with me. Well, it didn't last long that match because Garvin, he seemed like he was about as angry as LeDuc was. And he just basically crushed his opponent. And then he went up to, on the top rope to execute, man, that dangerous knee drop uh, right into his opponent's throat. And uh, he pointed at LeDuc when he got up on the top rope and ready to jump off in the guy's throat. He he, he really was egging LeDuc on at that point. And uh, that boy was all it took. Again, Les uh, started grabbing Joe and trying to keep him to keep him from going to the ring. And about that time, Garvin blew. He just he just came sailing off the top rope. And uh, then the referee counted out the poor wrestler that Garvin had jumped on. And Garvin never moved. You know, he had he was so good at this move. He never moved. Uh, even when he landed, he just planted that knee in that guy's throat. And wow. he just sat right there with his knee in his throat. Wow. And then he pointed straight at LaDuke again <laughs> on the three count. Oh my God. Well, there's no stopping Joe at that point. I mean, Joe went absolutely crazy, man. And he bolted to the ring and he slid under the bottom rope and and he was crawling on his hands and knees trying to get to Garvin. And Garvin saw him coming, and he ran out the other side of the ring. So uh, Garvin was gone before LeDuc got a hand on him, and uh, he disappeared, man, back into the dressing room. He had, he had pretty much uh, done what he wanted to do, just make LeDuc as mad as he could. So Joe LeDuc came back to the set, the end of the first match segment. Then uh, Les quickly closed the segment. And, uh, you know, when the cameras returned after the commercial break, there was a two-minute commercial break there. Garvin was already in Studio B, and he had ring announcer Phil Rainey with him. And it was the first interview of the show began, and uh, Joe LaDuke was at the set with Les. So Les started it off by demanding, and we he had already talked to Ronnie about this earlier, that uh, the Southeastern promo- promoters, uh, they want the money back. They want those two checks back. So Les started off by demanding to Ronnie Garvin that he need to give those two checks that he had taken at the end of the Battle Royal six days earlier to Phil Rainey right now. And then uh, Garvin handed them over, you know. But then before he, he let him take them and uh, leave, it's poor old Phil, he demanded uh, in return that uh, Les show him the check. For ten thousand, that the winner is going to get the next afternoon. <laughs> so Les pulled out the check, and a camera came in real close, and it showed the ten thousand dollar total. Uh, you know, 
uh, and uh, so uh, you know the then uh, <laughs> as soon as that happened, Phil Rainey didn't wait. <laughs> Phil Rainey took off running. I mean, he never wanted to be involved <laughs> with the Raptors. He he took that money and he ran. So uh, at that point, you know, I guess both those guys then felt like it was time that they could scream at each other, whatever they wanted. And that's basically what they did for the rest of that two-minute interview. Both of them started screaming at each other, and Phil Rainey <laughs> ran from Studio B carrying yeah. the checks. Yeah. There was pandemonium in both studios, and you couldn't really hear much of what anybody, either of them, had to say. It was pretty much unrecognizable. But, boy, it was pretty obvious there's a great deal of hatred between these two guys. That is that is how you start a TV show. That is a great opening for a TV show. So what was next, Ron? Well, Jimmy Golden, uh, man, he made his official return to Southeastern. The fans went crazy, man, when he entered the studio. They loved him, man. And, uh, and he had lost to Loser Leaf Southeastern in the first week of May 1977 to Bob Warden Jr. And he'd been gone for eight months at this point. So... Gorgeous George Jr. and the Mongolian Stomper, they came out and joined Les at the set. They happened to be wrestling Golden the next afternoon and for the Stompers Championship. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Golden uh, began to wow the fans in the ring, man. But Gorgeous George Jr., man, he started making this really pretty strong case against Golden even being allowed back in Southeastern, especially since he'd lost the loser leave match to Bob Orton Jr. just eight months ago. So Les luckily had a perfect answer and a precedent for Jimmy's return. He reminded Gigi that Ronnie Garvin had also lost the loser leave Southeastern match in 1977 to Bob Orton Jr. In fact, it was a month prior to Golden losing his match to Bob Orton Jr. And that Southeastern officials had just two weeks ago allowed Ronnie Garvin to return to action as himself without his Mr. Knoxville identity because Garvin had basically hurt Bob Orton Jr. sent him out of Southeastern on December 16th, about a month before this show was on. So if Ronnie Garvin, he, he asked that, he was his question then to, to, to Gigi, he says, if Ronnie Garvin was allowed to come back, why wouldn't Southeastern officials allow Jimmy Golden to return, having been beaten by the same guy Garvin lost to? Right. So, <laughs> you know, made a lot of sense. GG, you know, all of a sudden, man, of a, a thousand words, man, was a loss for words, you know. And uh, then his point then from that on, from then on, that, that Jimmy Golden would certainly didn't deserve a shot at his stomper's belt. You know, if he's going to let him come back, he shouldn't get the shot at the belt. He has to do something. To, you know, he had all these excuses. So let's simply ask him why was the fe- why he felt there's a different situation for his friend Ronnie Garvin than it was for Jimmy Golden. Well, meanwhile, in the ring, Jimmy was doing his thing. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy drop kicked his opponent from the top rope, which he was really great at. And he hit this guy so, so hard that the guy went, flying between the top and the second rope out into the floor. And uh, and Jimmy had to leave the ring and go get him, pick him up, put him back in the ring, get back in the ring and cover him to even get the count on him. So uh, <laughs> Golden really had made a triumphant return, uh, not just to the ring, but also after he goes to the interview desk with Les. So fans love Jimmy, man. They just were crazy about him. And uh, Gigi was in studio, too, and he kept insisting during his commercial time uh, 
that Jimmy Golden shouldn't be allowed back in Southeastern and Eddie Stomper were, was going to make Golden sorry he'd even come back tomorrow afternoon in the Coliseum. Wow. I mean, I think it's a that's that's a pretty cool way to do the TV show. And I think this is a per, pretty cool time to do a break. Let's do that. And as we go to the break, let's remind you to find Southeastern Rewind on YouTube and subscribe. Make sure you ring the bell to get reminders on when the greatest stories in wrestling will be dropped on YouTube. You ring the bell, then we'll ring your bell as soon as anything new is up and ready. And make sure you tell your friends about Southeastern Rewind also. We will return with the personality profile. It's next on this studcast. 43 great three-hour super studcast. Only $2.99 each at tnstud.com. Click Super Studcast for Terry Funk, Stan Hansen, Jim Cornette, Bob Armstrong, Honky Talk Man, Mick Foley, Jim Barnett, Arn Anderson, Jerry Lawler, Lord Humongous, Danny Hodge, Paul Orndorff, Adrian Street, Jerry Briscoe, Kevin Sullivan, Bill Watts, Dr. D. David Schultz, Ronnie Garvin, Austin Idol, Assassin, Tommy and Johnny Rich, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Ron Wright, Dr. Tom Pritchard, Coco Beware, and many more. Plus, Japan, Caribbean, AWA Knoxville War, Riots, Hockey, Most Memorable Matches, and more tnstud.com click super studcast and pick your favorite only 2.99 for three hours of pure wrestling history all right everybody welcome back once again another studcast with the tennessee stud ron fuller it is david summers and okay we were about to approach the personality profile on this episode number 232 so stud what is happening on the profile well this one man was built around the the extremely bad relationship that was developing between Tony Charles and the world junior heavyweight champion, Nelson Roy. And Les had them both on the profile set with him for this personality profile life. Uh, Les uh, sat down between them, which was a good idea, obviously. And, uh, and as I said, it was being done live in front of the studio crowd, just feet away from where the crowd was themselves. And uh, so, uh, Les started out by asking Royal, Nelson Royal, exactly what his problem was with Tony Charles. And Nelson said he didn't like the way Southeastern officials handled Tony Charles and how they constantly let Tony Charles get the match with him for the World Junior Heavyweight Championship when it was offered to other wrestlers. Tony kept getting those matches. And that he had demanded because of that from the southeastern officials that uh, that that he get a Texas death match with Tony Charles. He wanted to have a Texas death match with Tony Charles and that he was going to prove that Tony Charles was not as tough as he should be, especially as a fighter, and definitely not man enough to continually get the shots at his belt. And that the upcoming Texas death match between them, which was going to be the following day, was going to definitely um, mark his words, man. Uh, you know, he, he was he was making his point that, you know, he wanted to, Tony Charles to have to beat him in a Texas death match, but he's not going to get any more chances at the World Junior title. 
So then Les turned it over to Tony, and I uh, asked him, uh, what was his rebuttal to Roy? And uh, so Tony started, uh, you know, and he started by, in a pretty good way. He started by naming the world junior champions that he had beaten. And, uh, and then he, he made a big point of saying, none of which had ever claimed that he wasn't man enough to beat him. You know, and he beat Royal, so, you know, uh, Royal didn't have much right to make that claim either. So, mm -hmm. And then he reminded Royal that the last world title match in which they had had, when the time ran out, that when it ran out, he had Nelson Royal screaming in pain because he had, he had him in his torture rack hole. And, uh, you know, the studio fans erupted. Obviously, none of them had forgot that match. <laughs> they, were, they remembered what that was all about. So Royal got upset. He got a little little madder, and he fired right back. He was, and he said that 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 hole was a great example of exactly what he was talking about. He said, he said, you know, he says, why did Charles use a hole like that, and rather than fight back like other guys? <laughs> <laughs> so he said, he and then he well, he started in another direction, and he said something about he said American wrestlers are just tougher than other people from outside the country. And then, uh, you know, he says, I prefer to wrestle against real men, not foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, you know, and then so then he finishes by saying, that's why this upcoming Texas death match was perfect to prove my point that if Tony Charles couldn't win it, he doesn't deserve any more title matches against me. So let's ask Tony. His back and forth there, he says to Tony, well, what do you have to say about that, Tony? So Tony was very polite, and he stood up, and he, he kind of apologized for Roy, to Roy for not being an American wrestler, you know, uh, but he wanted to let Nelson <laughs> know how he felt about this subject and not being tough enough to mm -hmm. deserve another championship match, that maybe he should give Royal a little something to think about before this Texas death match. Uh -huh. So then he bent forward <laughs> very slowly oh. and he slapped Roy with an open hand across the face. Oh man. my God. Wow. And he walked off the set, slap sounded like a gun went off. <laughs> wow. Mean, like he hit him with a, with a shell, <laughs> shotgun shell or something. Right. And uh, boy, the studio erupted obviously. And Nelson Royal turned his chair over backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and then he jumped up on his feet, man, and he and he was he was like you know looking around, and then Charles had gone. He left the set, and then he exploded, which Nelson was pretty good at, man. When he got fired up, uh, while he was he was he was ball red in the face, and he started screaming for Les to get Charles back out here, get him back out here, and then. <laughs> Then the studio, they just exploded, man. <laughs> they loved it then they, they, because Tony had really made his point. So Les was having a hard time actually not smiling <laughs> himself because of how hard Tony had slapped Royal now. Wow. So he, he closed out the profile with Nelson Royal, and the studio was still going crazy when he did. <laughs> All right, so it sounds like this bad relationship between the two of them was going to get a lot worse. So I bet fans couldn't wait on that Texas death match the next day. So who was next? 
Well, my brother Robert Fuller and Ricky Gibson entered the studio as the crowd continued to celebrate that personality profile. Uh, Ron Wright and his Southeastern Tag Champions, Don Carson, the Assassin, they joined Les at the set. Ron Wright had a pair of scissors with him, you know, and uh, and he started right away talking about how his team had not wrestled anybody but Robert Fuller and Thunderbolt Patterson for their belts since Thanksgiving night, which was six weeks earlier than this match that was upcoming the next day. And he, then he hearkened back again to the Thanksgiving night. He said, on that Thanksgiving night, uh, six weeks ago, he says, my champions had defended against the same two opponents now that they're going to be in the ring with tomorrow in the Coliseum. The guys that's out there right now wrestling, Robert Fuller and Ricky Gibson. He said, that's the last team that we wrestled for the championship other than Robert Fuller and Thunderbolt Patterson. So Wright continued on, as Ron Wright was pretty good at. You know, he couldn't shut himself up. And uh, he said, also on that same Thanksgiving night, six weeks ago, he said, Robert Fuller put up his hair against a young guy that uh, that he, talking about Ron, he says, against a guy that I trained to wrestle, a guy named Larry Cheatham. Cheatham. And yeah. Wright said that he had gone to the ring with his good friend Larry Cheatham that Thanksgiving night, guaranteeing Larry – that he wasn't going to lose his hair. But he said, Robert Fuller cheated as he always did, and poor uh, Larry ended up bald. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so Les interrupted Ron, saying, he's, he says, Les, I had a clear blue, he says, I remember that night. He goes, uh, your man Larry Cheatham left the ring with less hair than you have, Ron. <laughs> oh boy, so uh, the Carson and Carson the assassin and Ron Wright, they went crazy over that comment. They started screaming. And the studio crowd, they were in the middle of watching this match between Robert and Gibson and this tag match was in progress. They couldn't hear what was being said at the set. But man, I'm upstairs and I'm thinking, boy, those people at home sure got them a pop. <laughs> no, that lie. So then uh, Ron finally regained his composure, man, and he began to tell Les why he had the scissors with him. And he said to Les, you know, Robert Fuller still had a, you know, and then is it, I'll do a little Ron Wright if I can here, but, you know, he said, you know what, Robert Fuller, he's, he's, a, he's still got that real pretty hair, and he needs uh, a haircut uh. bad. And he said he should have got him one last Thanksgiving night, but he says, my trainee Larry Cheatham, he got it instead, by golly. And he said that in addition to his team beating Robert Fuller and Ricky Gibson tomorrow afternoon, he says, I intend to bring my scissors, and I'm going <laughs> to give Robert Fuller a proper haircut tomorrow. And uh, he said, and he says, I'm not even going to charge him for it either. Well, yes. how nice. <laughs> <laughs> so about that time, Robert and Ricky got a win. The match was over, and they won the match, and Wright and his men, they got up and left the set. Robert and Ricky, they joined Les, and, and Wright and his champions showed up over there in Studio B. He had his boys with him, their belts with him, and the whole deal. And the conversation uh, got pretty hot and heavy about Ron Wright bringing his scissors and somebody losing hair. Uh, and that was much, just as much discussed as somebody losing the belts the next day, <laughs> This little issue mm -hmm. over Rob's hair being too much hair or needing a haircut and Rob mm -hmm. Wright wanting to do it for him, it, it was getting crazy.
Okay, so I think I'd be kind of uncomfortable around Ron Wright and a pair of scissors. So I wonder where this is going, Stud. <laughs> well, well, fans were probably going to like it where it was going. I think. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So the, the last TV match of the day, uh, we're going to just uh, we're just going to leave the scissors hanging out there for now. Uh, but the last match of the day was Joe Ledoux. And, and as always, man, Joe got the crowd going, man, uh, as usual. Uh, so Ronnie Garvin came to join, came to the set with Les. Uh, just Joe LaDuke had been at the set when Garvin had his first match, uh, the first match of the show. So Joe LaDuke had two opponents, which he liked to do. And uh, he finished the first one off pretty quick. And he had the second one in his bear hug. And all of a sudden, man, Ronnie Garvin just hit the ring. And uh, out of of the clear blue, Joe had his back turned, had the bear hug on the guy. The studio obviously exploded. Uh, Garvin stopped Joe, and he opened up what was a pretty bad cut on Joe's head from the Sunday afternoon before. And uh, then the wrestlers uh, from both dressing rooms had to go to the the ring. It it was a pretty wild melee at the end of the show. And uh, they tried to separate the two stars. It finally got them apart. And... uh, and it was kind of wild before it was over. Wow. So the last interviews for each of them was done. And the next afternoon, man, was going to tell the tale of this TV and just how good it was as far as the crowd was concerned. So what did happen the next day, Ron? <clears throat> well, I think in the first match of the day, Ron Wright was so focused on his team's title defense, on his scissors, and on cutting Rob's hair that – he lost his match to Mike Stallings. <laughs> and, you know, that's a pretty good win for Mike Stallings to beat Ron Wright. <laughs> but uh, I think Ron's focus was not where it should have been. Uh, Roy Lee Welch, he just kept rolling along, man. He had these series of pretty darn good wins. And uh, and he defeated Reno Toffoli, the, uh, one of the Samoans. Uh, Thunderbolt Patterson won his match against the other Samoan, Tio Toffoli. And then the Southeastern Tag Championship match was mostly focused on Ron Wright's scissors and my brother's hair. So Robert and Ricky Gibson won the match by disqualification uh, when Ron Wright entered the ring and he attacked Rob, who was in the heels corner, actually tied in the ropes in the heels corner. And uh, Carson and the assassin were double teaming Ricky. So Ron saw his spot, brought out his scissors from the TV show the day before. And he was able to get him a pretty good swath of Rob's hair, man, before Rob was able to escape from the ropes and chased him back to the dresser. Okay, Ron, so is that it? Is that the end of the hair angle? Is it over? Uh, no, 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 it isn't really, no. Uh, next week, in fact, Rob's going to be putting his hair up against Ron Wright's hair. <laughs> I mean, that that is a real mismatch, Stud. I got to say that. Robert had... Way more hair, uh, a head full of beautiful hair, but Ron Wright had almost no hair. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> but, you know, Ron Wright, he just kept insisting, man. He wanted a hair versus hair match, and uh, by golly, he's got it for the next week. So then uh, Tony Charles, he proved he could fight with the best of them. He defeated Nelson Royal in his first ever Texas death match. Tony, talking about Tony's first Texas death match. And uh, he would receive another World Junior Heavyweight Championship match with Nelson Royal the last Sunday in January of 1978. Jimmy Golden made a triumphant return. He won his Southeastern title match by disqualification, couldn't win the title, 
but he did win the match and got his hand raised. Uh, and uh, Gorgeous George Jr. had to get involved, save his champion. Uh, Ronnie Garvin stole the 10000 Battle Royal money for the second time from Joe LaDuke. Whoa. And uh, in the winner-takes-all main event. So that one is still not solved as to who's going to actually get that money. But I bet you had a house full of crazy fans. What was the attendance like? It was uh, over 5,000. 5,000, about 5,450, man. Wow. So another big crowd, man, uh, building full. Oh, no doubt. Okay, so another great one, Stud. Our learning tree question for today comes from a Twitter follower from Canada. His handle is Rocky1954, and he says, I understand in southeastern Pensacola, you would book for a year and then turn it over to your brother for a year. When you were not booking, was it totally hands-off or vice versa? This is kind of what we were talking about. You mentioned earlier, if you had concerns about the directions that things were going, did you ever step in and override Robert, or did he try to, try to stop some kind of angle that you were working? Either way. <laughs> Great question, huh? <laughs> A pretty darn good question. You know, my brother and I had – Great periods and lengths of time when we didn't see eye to eye. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, but this was business. It was totally different. You know, we never questioned each other about the way we were handling business. When it was the other one's turn to book. And uh, that long year, man, and it was a long year, that year that you had the book, uh, it was filled with lots of responsibilities if you were a booker, man. Uh, you had to find your own crew at the beginning of the year. You had to keep your crew, and you had to replace guys if it was necessary. You had to constantly come up with angles and things that were going to fill buildings. And you had to make sure everybody in your crew was staying out of trouble and doing their best for the company and always had the company in mind. And so uh, lots of times, uh, one on the other hand had to get back involved, even though it wasn't their turn yet to begin their year. You know, so for instance, as an example, uh, when Bob Armstrong turned heel on me in the Ric Flair 1982 NWA world title match, and I was injured and out for almost seven months, uh, who better to step up and take over for my family than my brother, man, after this happened. So even though it wasn't his year to book or wrestle, uh, he was the perfect guy to step up and get Bob Armstrong over. And he did from the very beginning of that great angle, man, that just uh, rocked Southeastern uh, for, for years. So in, uh, we were all family, basically, not just uh, me, Rob, and Jimmy, but Bob. And, uh, you know, and nothing was more important than the business itself. We needed to support each other, and we always avoided family problems. Uh, we never had. So that family included more than just me and my brother, as I said, more than just Jimmy and Roy Lee. Uh, it included Bob Armstrong, and it even included his sons when they all began to wrestle, which started to happen after about 1981. So Rocky 54, I think that was the name. Uh, thanks for your question, you know. And I got to say, in the 10 years from 1978, when Southeastern Pensacola opened up all the way through Continental Days, until 1987, when we sold Continental, I don't ever remember a really bad incident between any of us, much less trying to override somebody. 
That's that's pretty huge for a family and a, f- a family of wrestlers. So that's pretty remarkable, in my opinion, for a family to accomplish that. Something really to be proud of. Uh, kind of like this stud cast stud, no doubt about it. Hey, listen, folks, YouTube, Southeastern Rewind is where you find everything Ron Fuller Welch, plus Southeastern, Continental, and USA TV wrestling shows. Go there to subscribe. Ring the bell icon. And you're on board the fastest-growing old-school YouTube channel when it comes to wrestling. Every time something new is added to the channel, we'll ring the bell. On Facebook, please do not friend request the stud on his Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page. It has a maximum of 5,000 fans. It has been full for years. Can't add any more to it. To become friends with him on Facebook, simply go to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or Ron Fuller Welch author page. Like and follow him there. You automatically become friends that way. All three Facebook pages get the same post and information. If it happens on one, it happens on all three. On Twitter, find Ron at Ron Fuller Welch. Find everything else on his website at tnstud.com. That's TN for Tennessee, tnstud.com. Studcast, Super Studcast, his stud store, which is very popular with souvenirs of all kinds, including his tremendous novel, Brutus, great match videos, a fantastic photo gallery, and a whole lot more. All at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Okay, stud, so where do we ride next week? Well, like today's training next week is going to focus on the southeastern Pensacola territory again. And this time it's going to be all about the major market of Mobile, Alabama, where there was no television. So, uh, and it was critical, basically, to the success of any territory, especially a new one, to get on one of the three major network affiliates in the big markets that you owned with your company and to get on there as soon as possible. And that's what had to happen. Uh, and we're going to be talking about it in next week's program. Pensacola and Panama City were also markets with potential stations that uh, could dramatically help things grow faster. So we're going to touch on those as well next week uh, when we start talking about today's training. And uh, we're going to ride back to southeastern Knoxville for the big card of January 15, 1978 in the Coliseum. It's going to have that hair versus hair match between Rob and Ron Wright Plus, another opportunity for Robert and Thunderbolt Patterson to win the tag titles on that card. Joel Duke and Ronnie Garvin weren't finished with each other yet. And that 10000 battle royal money still kind of up for grabs. Jimmy Golden got his second shot, southeastern belt of the stomper. And this time, it's going to be with a no DQ clause. And then we're going to cover the TV that promoted that card, the results of the matches, and the attendance. And we're going to end up next studcast with another great learning tree question. And this one, I think uh, fans are going to kind of like this one too, Dave. And it's about who was the toughest of the three original Welch brothers, Roy, Herb, or Lester? All right. So that question alone should be worth listening to the entire studcast. Anything else, Stud? I know you got something else. Well, obviously, I want to thank everybody, as always, man, for listening today. And I hope everyone out there subscribes to uh, Southeastern Rewind on the YouTube channel. Uh, It's one of the fastest growing channels on YouTube. 
and it's really taken off kind of like a rocket. And uh, hmm. please take care of yourselves out there, everyone, and others as well. And may God bless us all. Another fun time, Stud. Thanks a lot for Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains. I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.